Father, this morning we pray that you would interpret the language of our hearts, God. And Lord, sometimes the language of our hearts is distractedness. Sometimes the language of our heart, Father, is being focused on self. Sometimes, Lord, it's um, fearful. Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's being disinterested. But Lord, we pray that today it would be worship, that the language of our heart would be to connect with you. That God, sometimes we don't even know how to pray, but we thank you for your Holy Spirit that intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. So this morning, that's what I'm asking is that your Holy Spirit intercedes for us. God, that you would draw out of us the things that you would desire, that you would speak to us, help us to understand your word. We pray that you would meet with us now. And God, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would help us to understand what it is that you would desire to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. All right. Well, I don't have um, my iPad going, so if we could get that up there whenever we get a chance to. Um, welcome uh, this morning. I just wanted to um, thank those of you that helped out with uh, the 4th of July parade. That was a really cool thing. There were um, a lot of people, probably the biggest parade that Scotts Valley has had um, because it's the 50th year anniversary of the city. And it was neat just to have banners that said, Jesus full of grace and truth. And you know, I was thinking about how um, our nation has been just so divided. This was actually uh, before all of the events and the things that had happened in Dallas. And I was thinking just to be out there, you know, to be able to proclaim that, that God is Lord, that Jesus is Lord in a place where, you know, we, we celebrate freedom. It's the 4th of July, there's Independence Day, but really... It's our, um, for us as believers, declaration of dependence upon God. And um, I was just thinking about the healing that our nation needs. And this is even before what happened this last week, um, you know, Thursday and Friday. So, you know, just thinking about those things, my heart was really burdened, even for the parade. I would just encourage you to be a part of that next year. Um, the more, the merrier. If we can get, you know, as many people out there as possible, um, just to proclaim, you know, the hope that we have in God. But my heart was burdened back then, and then, as you know, with the police officers that got shot in Dallas, and then the two shootings, um, police officer-involved shootings that kind of led up to that, um, if we could go to the next slide, um, I, I've just been very burdened this last week. You know, I was really praying about what to share and how to share and if I should say something, and, um, you know, I... I'm going to teach through Revelation chapter 11. We're going to get into the word. We're going to anchor ourselves in the word. But I just think it's important to mention some of these things. You know, the, the quote up there, this is um, Martin Luther King's um, Nobel Prize speech. There's a portion of it. It says, violence never brings permanent peace. It solves no social problem. It merely creates new and more complicated ones. Violence is impractical because it is a descending spiral uh, ending in destruction for all. It is immoral because it seeks to humiliate the opponent rather than win his understanding. It seeks to annihilate rather than convert. Violence is immoral because it thrives on hatred rather than love. It destroys community and makes brotherhood impossible. It leaves society in monologue rather than dialogue. Violence ends up defeating itself. It creates bitterness in the survivors and brutality in, in the destroyers. And you know, I just think that... Um, my heart was so heavy this last week, not only for the police officers' families in Dallas, but, you know, Scripture says that we're to weep with those who weep. And, and I think about um, the two men that were killed leading up to those riots 
and I don't know all of the details, but I, I watched the videos. Very graphic. Um, I had to look away. I had to cry for a second, and I was just moved. Whatever it is that is causing these things, whatever happens, we realize that we should have a heart that is heavy for everyone that is involved. You know, I, I have a heart for the people in Dallas. Um, I, I think about I think about a lot of my um, friends that are police officers. You know, Jeff Rickle, who was our worship leader, he's one of the elders um, at the church in Gilroy. Just one of the most decent, loving, wonderful men you would ever meet. Um, just has a heart for people. Often as he would arrest people in San Jose and they were in the back of his um, car, he would talk to them and he would just like try to, try to be a witness to them. You know, I think about my friend Eric Kiampor, who is a, a police officer, uh, one of my best friends in all of life. And I just can't think of, it, just, uh, I can't think of more loving human beings than that. Um, just sensitive hearts. And then I think about my black friends and I think about what they must be facing. And I think that it is so important that when we try to understand what other people are facing and what other people are going through, we don't just come from our own perspective and just say, well, they should be like this or they should understand these things. You know, all, all lives matter. But I, I want to point out that when, you know, you think about the, the whole Black Lives Matter uh, matters movement, yes, there are some that are a part of that movement that are very... Um, like vigilante type, but there are a lot, most of them that are just hurting and they're just, they're not saying that, that black lives matter only. They're saying that black lives matter also. Okay, that's the message that they're trying to get across, that black lives matter also. It's not like they're more, better, above. It, it would be, um, I heard it said, you know, one guy was saying, it's kind of like, imagine if, if your house burned down. And if your house is burned down and you threw up a picture because you're trying to, you know, raise money or you, all of your stuff is gone and you put a hashtag and it says, this house matters. And imagine someone commenting right after that saying, all houses matter. Do you see how that could kind of be an affront to the person whose house just burned down? The reason why I say this is that it's, it, it, all lives do matter. Police lives matter. Every minority, every majority, every person matters. Jesus came to break down walls of separation. First of all, walls of separation between us and God. He died. He gave his own life and sacrificed so that the wall of separation could be brought down. Then when you read in Galatians, you, you, you read about the wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles. There's no Greek, nor Jew, nor Scythian. I mean, all of these nationalities because Jesus has come that those walls would be broken down and we're a part of this human race in which we're all fallen, we're all sinful, and we all need to be redeemed. So we need to pray for justice and we need to pray for comfort. When you read the minor prophets and the major, you can't read the prophets without realizing that they were involved in social justice, which was a social justice for God and for making an impact and an influence in his world. And I think that we have given over that social justice part to this arm of people that we say, okay, those are people that are very liberal in theology. And now we have all these labels and conservatism has a different label now. It has a different connotation. And, and a lot of people that aren't conservative have a, an idea that conservatism means um, angry and, and judgmental. 
when I believe for myself that conservatism, for me, I'm not even conservative or liberal. I'm, I want to be biblical. See, I, I want to be, I'm not a Democrat or Republican. I want to be a Christian that follows Christ. And so we've got to get rid of those, those labels and those lines and just say, hey, where do we follow Jesus? And sometimes when you look at how Jesus reached out to the, the people that were disenfranchised and the people that were ostracized, he was criticized. You remember when we studied the book of Acts when Paul was reaching out to the Gentiles? Do you remember how that was super controversial and the Jews wanted to kill him because he said that now the, the Gentiles are offered the same thing as the Jews? See, as Christians, we have a voice and we're to be salt and light. So God has given us the opportunity not only to speak, but to make a difference. And I'm not saying that, that just praying is all we're to do. I mean, ask the Lord, God, what should I do? How should I be a, a part of this? And it's not the only cause. You know, I, I'm, I'm for all life, and including life that's in the womb. So if I am for all life, then people should see the fruit of our lives as Christians. There should be something of the joy of Christ that is emanating from us, some, some part of the peace, the part of reconciliation. Remember what it says in Corinthians, Jesus came and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's given that ministry to us. That ministry is not given to freedom fighters. That ministry is not given to politicians. That ministry is not given to, you know, these public speakers. That ministry is given to each one of us individually. Because it's so easy to broad brush a bunch of other people by saying them. But when you know a person and you have a conversation with them and you get to know them, you realize that so many times we're one bit of information away from compassion. Just one piece of information away from understanding. The Bible tells us God's word to weep with those who weep. And it doesn't say to judge whether or not you should weep with them or not weep with them, depending upon what they weep for. I mean, when I think about what happens in war, you look at a, a, a smart bomb that goes off and, and yes, it hits a target and it might be a, a key terrorist target and it might be someone that is very dangerous. And that might be um, a good thing in a sense for a country to have to do or for people to have to do, but there's still going to be people all around them that are weeping. And we're to weep with them because being deceived, they need the Lord. They need Jesus. And that's something that God has called us all to do. We are to be quick to listen and slow to speak. We need to listen to people's perspective and understand where they're coming from. And even if someone might be might be wrong in a perspective, whatever that perspective might be. If I'm not willing to listen to them, I'm not going to win them. And if I'm not willing to listen to them, there's not going to be any type of reconciliation that is possible in any conflict. It is important then after we were slow to listen, I mean quick to listen and slow to speak, then when the Lord gives us this truth, we're to speak the truth, but speak the truth in love. Not just truth, but speak the truth in love. And remember this, that when you speak the truth in love, you will risk. You will risk being misunderstood. You will risk being judged. You'll risk other people labeling you as whatever that label is they want to label you. Right-wing fundamentalist, conservative, liberal, whatever those labels are. Speak the truth in love. 
And then remember that Jesus told us to do this. He said, bless those who curse you. That's my Lord speaking. Bless those who curse you. He didn't say bless those who bless you. He didn't say curse those who curse you. He said bless those who curse you. And then he said this, do good to those who hate you. See, what's happened in our country is that we're doing bad to those that hate us. And we're hating them back and we're becoming the very thing that we hate. God's called us to love. God is love. Now, I'm not just, that's not some bumper stickerism. That's in the Bible, in case you don't know. God is love. And because God is love, it is so important that we don't become the very thing that angers us about people on the other side. Because in my truth and in my rightness and what I believe, I could become angry and vindictive. And now, all of a sudden, instead of being able to present the gospel, that person has now become an enemy that will never listen to what I'm saying. So, I want to encourage you. Jesus came down to break down these walls. And I want to read this to you and then we'll pray, we'll get into Revelation. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 19 says this. It says, for the love of Christ compels us. Because Because we judge thus. That if one died for all, then all died. And if he died for all, all those who live should no longer live for themselves. It's not about my cause. But for him who died for them and rose again, it's about Jesus. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. So when you meet people, people are people. And whether they know the Lord or not, whether a person is gay or straight, black or white, they're people. And, and people are created in the image of God. And the people that don't know God, God has put us in their lives to be a witness by our words and by an example because he wants them to know him. So we don't regard people according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we now know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. One of the most amazing testimonies, one of the greatest testimonies is when enemies that are Christians become friends. One of the greatest testimonies that you'll ever see is by someone's love converting someone that had hate. I mean, you think about the civil rights movement and, and, and how alongside of Martin Luther King Jr., you had white pastors in the South marching next to him, and a lot of them were persecuted, right? Because they marched with him. Because they decided to do something about it. They were vilified by other people that, that didn't agree. But remember, if someone's in Christ, they're a new creation. So I should see you in your difference. You should see in my, my difference as a blessing in diversity. When you read about heaven as we've looked at in Revelation, we realize that every tongue and tribe and nation, which means in heaven nationalities are still distinguishable. Did you realize that? It says from, and John sees this revelation of heaven, people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. We don't become chubby little angels floating around with diapers, okay? We're, we're people that God created in his image, all people, yet redeemed. So therefore, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us 
given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And it has been a long time that I've been in tears over our country. For me, it was probably 9-11. Maybe the last time that I just kind of wept over our, uh, our nation because I love this country. I really do. You know, I've been to three spiritual heritage tours in Washington, D.C. And, and right there, just looking at how the, the founding of our nation, not all Christians, but, but all men are created equal. And, and what we realize is that they had a, a faith and a belief in God. They had an openness to God. And many of them were Christians. Many of the writers of the Constitution, many of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. If you go to, to uh, the Capitol, what you'll find is um, there are 100 statues that are supposed to be there, two statues for every state. So every state gets to represent themselves by two statues. And 48 of those statues are statues of pastors. Do you realize that? L- going back to the, the founding of the states, that many of the people that were legislators that signed these things, that, that were a part of changing laws and, and our, our whole country and, and the, the values that we would have were, were pastors, ministers of the gospel. So, I, as burdened as I am, I'm not as burdened as I should be. There are times when I'm only burdened enough to watch it on the news, but not necessarily do something. I'm praying, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to physically be a part of something, to meet with people, to help people, to speak, to know people? So I would just want to pray for our nation and, and just ask that we would pray for revival, that we would pray for a, another movement of God's spirit. You know, in the 1970s, the Jesus movement that birthed Calvary Chapel, that birthed Youth for Christ, that birthed Campus Crusade, that birthed uh, Inner Varsity, that movement in the 1970s happened amongst young people. And I'm just praying for our young people today that there would be some that are bold to have a voice. It happened after the young people were disillusioned with the culture as it was. It was on the tail end of Vietnam. Our country had just been through a war and this confusion about the war. What is this war even about? And then you have Watergate and the scandal with with Richard Nixon. And now we can't even trust politicians. We can't even trust our leaders. And conditions are similar to what they were then. I just pray that young people turn towards Jesus. That this is the time where they would come forth and they would say, yes, there is love. But this is love. It's Jesus full of grace and truth. So would you pray with me? Father, I just want to lift up our, our country to you. Lord Jesus, I I pray that we would be a part of reconciliation. Lord, we realize that all of us are sinners. We that know you are saved by grace, not, not because we earned it. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to also understand that those that don't know you are gonna act like they don't know you. Lord, those that don't have the spirit of God in them. Lord, those that... um don't have Jesus as their example, as their savior, are not going to act the way that, that we realize that, that people should act. But God, it's for us, it's for me to repent when I don't act like you. Because I do know you. Because I, I do know your word and I know that you tell us to, to risk. You tell us to go out into all the world.
to preach the gospel, to love our neighbors, to love our enemies, to do good to them. And God, I have a righteous anger. I hope that it's righteous, Lord, at times when I see unrighteousness. But Lord, I pray that in that anger that it would not be misdirected at people that are blind in a sense and, and need to know the truth. And Jesus, we pray for justice. We pray for the perpetrators of evil. God, we, we ask that you would stop them. Lord, we pray that, that, those, that are, um, those that are good as far as uh, we can be good. Lord, that those in, in law enforcement, those that are in leadership of our nation would turn towards you. God, that they would act in righteousness. So this morning as we open our word, your word and we see what happens in these end times in the book of Revelation, we pray that we wouldn't see that as escapism for us. But God, that it would bring hope, that we would realize that you are in control even in the most chaotic crazy situations we ask you lord that as we look at the lives of these two witnesses that we would be faithful witnesses god may you fill us with your love your joy your peace your goodness your kindness your faithfulness your gentleness your self-control fill us with your holy spirit and jesus as you fill us with your holy spirit may we represent you well we pray this in jesus name amen Amen. If you would turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 11. Revelation, chapter 11. As we've been going through the book of Revelation, remember that the revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not hidden. It's not veiled. He wants to reveal himself and his character to us. And we've looked at these different perspectives, these ways to interpret the book of Revelation, the historicist that tries to fit so much of the book of Revelation into history. But the problem with that is that we don't know for sure. You know, these are reformers. A lot of the people during the Reformation saw, well, you know, this represents the church from 1100 to 1300, and this represents the church from 1300 to the Renaissance. And, and while some of those things might match up, we don't know those things for sure. The preterist who believes that most of the book of Revelation was written... Um, for a time that happened during Jesus' life, they believe that the book of Revelation was probably written somewhere in the late 60s, A.D. 60, not 1960, but A.D. 60, because the destruction of the temple happens in A.D. 70, and they see these things happening, and they believe that most of the book of Revelation is about things that have already taken place. You have those that spiritualize the book of Revelation, and everything is symbol, uh, symbolic. Um, the two witnesses represent the church or, or the temple represents the church to them. And so when you start to see the spiritual um, interpretation, when you spiritualize everything, then everything is open to interpretation. And there are many difficulties with that. And then when you have the futurist position, which, which I really believe the book of Revelation is written towards, even in its futuristic apocalyptic language, um, it speaks of everything from really chapter 4 on being things that are to come in the future. And especially from chapter 5 until you get to um, right around chapter 18, uh, you're going to see that as that's mostly going to be the tribulation period, which is called the wrath of the Lamb. Now, there are things that I could pull from each one of those aspects of seeing Scripture. And there are many godly, scholarly people, as I've said before, that, that hold to those. But this morning, as we look at the book of Revelation chapter 11, 
I really believe that this is looking to something that is going to happen in the future during this tribulation period called the wrath of the lamb or Jacob's trouble. In fact, when we begin in the book of Revelation, you're going to see that out of the 404 verses, 278 are direct references to the Old Testament. And we're going to see some of them right here in Revelation 11. So read with me in Revelation 11, verse 1. John writing, remember, he was given the little scroll to eat last week, and um, it was like sweet as honey in his mouth, bitter in his stomach. And then there were more things that God wanted to reveal. And so in verse 1, it says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. So God told John to measure the people that are worshiping and the temple. So this doesn't mean like, oh, you know, you know, your waistline and, you know, measuring, you know, your, your arms and, you know, your inseam. But measuring scripturally, it, it shows ownership and the fact that God knows what belongs to him. In Zechariah chapter 2, um, uh, he was called to measure Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, um, there's a measurement of the new Jerusalem. In Ezekiel chapter 40 through 43, Ezekiel was to measure the temple. And here in Revelation 11, John is to measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there, minus the court of the Gentiles. So he's called to measure this temple. Now, most people, most scholars believe that the book of Revelation was written around AD 90, okay? If the temple was destroyed in AD 70 by Titus Vespasian, this is talking about the Jewish temple in Israel, If that temple was destroyed, then the book of Revelation was probably written about 20 years after that. But there's a temple here that John is told to measure. And because he's told to measure, again, um, the preterist says, well, that's that's why they believe that the book of Revelation was written before AD 70. But there are many different proofs that that I think that the preponderance of evidence is that it was written more towards AD 90, even from church historians that were alive in that first century. Other people spiritualize this interpretation, but neither of those is satisfactory to me. So if John is told to measure the temple, then there must be a temple to measure. And it seems that there's a literal temple in Jerusalem. Now, some history. How many of you like history? All right. How many of you don't like history? Okay, those that don't keep your hand up this whole time. I'm just kidding. (laughs) For those of you that don't, I'm giving you enough history that it'll make sense to you in the context of this. For those of you that like history, um, I think that you'll just get a kick out of some of this stuff. It's, It's really crazy. Solomon was the one that built the original temple. Remember that in the Old Testament, David wanted to build the temple, but his, he was a man that was a, a man of war or a man of blood. God told him, no, but I'm going to allow your son Solomon to do it. So David, because he couldn't do it, provided the materials for Solomon to build this temple. So Solomon built the temple um, on Jerusalem's Mount Moriah, right around 1050 BC, more than... Um, this is just an amazing thing because Mount Moriah, do you remember where that comes from? Abraham, who sacrificed his son Isaac or was called to do that, and then God stopped him. 
And, and God told Abraham, go and take your son Isaac, your only son, and sacrifice him on the mountain that I will tell you. So he goes, and when he sees Mount Moriah, and if you've ever been to Israel, it was cool because our tour guide took us on this backcountry way to get there. And you come up over the route that Abraham probably traveled to get there. And as you come up uh, over the hill, and you get to the top of the hill, and she points out, look, there's Mount Moriah. You know what you're looking at? You're looking at the Temple Mount. That's Mount Moriah. And you're looking right across at that mountain, that hill where God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And then God stopped Abraham and he said, I know that you're faithful. And remember, Abraham said this to his son Isaac, God will provide himself the sacrifice. God will provide himself. Well, guess what? After the life of Abraham, 2,000 years later, there was another man named Jesus who walked up to that hill called Calvary or Golgotha and gave himself as a sacrifice for us. Do you see the significance of this place? It's absolutely amazing when you consider that. So Solomon built his temple, an incredible temple, but after Israel and, and Judah, those northern and southern kingdoms, when they rebelled against God, um, the Babylonians came, and in 586 B.C., they came and they destroyed Jerusalem and they decimated the temple. So that's what Babylon did in 586 B.C. Seventy years after that, a man named Zerubbabel came and God called Zerubbabel to come and rebuild the temple. So he rebuilt the temple. Now, after Zerubbabel, 20 B.C., this is when you get into, um, you know, the time of Jesus, there was a, a ruler... Um, an emperor or a, a, Jew, a king named Herod. And Herod wanted to enlarge and expand the temple. So that temple was what is known as Herod's temple. He was adding on, he was building it up. And it became this incredible, magnificent place. One of the wonders of the world. But when Jesus was walking the earth, when he was with his disciples, and people were so impressed by this temple, he said, I tell you the truth, this temple is going to be destroyed. And not one stone is going to be left upon another. Which was an amazing thing for them because it was such a magnificent feat. And the stones were, were tons. I mean, one of the stones that we saw, I think it was 70 tons. One, one stone, one you know, cut stone out of rock was, was a part of that temple. And these gigantic rocks, they were just decimated. And a part of that original temple and the, the rubble that's there is still there to this day. I actually took a picture standing on top of the rubble, you know, as, as just like an evidence that Jesus' prophecy was true. It all came down. So, all that to say, if there is a temple that is here that, that John is supposed to measure, and this is during the tribulation period, then it would seem that there has to be a temple somewhere that is going to be rebuilt, or a temple there in Jerusalem. What is happening right now in Israel is that there is a religious fervor that some people have that they have a desire to rebuild the temple. That's called the Temple Institute. So we took a tour of the Temple Institute and we go in, and this isn't the majority of Jewish people, but there are, are some that are called the Temple Faithful. They want to rebuild the temple because they believe that once they rebuild the temple and they start rebuilding it, that their Messiah, the Messiah will finish it Okay, so they're trying to rebuild the temple, waiting for the Christ. 
waiting for the Messiah. Going into um, the Temple Institute, it was really interesting. Um, I was going to show some pictures today. I'll probably show them in a couple of weeks um, on another section of Scripture. But you're not supposed to take pictures in there. And I did not see the signs. You know, Kim and Gary were there. You can remember that. Uh, I, I didn't see the, the signs. I said, no photography, no video. So I'm in there. I'm taking all these pictures. I had these incredible pictures. And they saw me. And I was so glad they didn't take my camera. And they said, you can't take pictures. Oh, I said, oh, okay. I just put it away. But I, I got some stellar, just perfect pictures. Um, I have pictures of the priestly garments that they are, they already have the priestly garments as described in the book of Leviticus. So when the priest comes, this is what he's going to wear. The turban, the breastplate that has all the stones of Israel on, on his chest, um, a replica of all of the things, the, the utensils for the sacrifice, they are ready to rebuild the temple. The reason why they can't right now, something's up there on the temple mount. Do you know what that is? It's called the Dome of the Rock. All right, that gold dome that you see of Israel, which is a, a Muslim, you know, holy place. And right next to it is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is another mosque. And so on that Temple Mount, you have the whole controversy of the Middle East. If, if the Middle East and the controversy of the world is the Middle East, and then in the Middle East, the controversy is Israel, the biggest controversy in Israel is this Temple Mount. This piece of property... This small little uh, place that is probably the size of this whole parking lot. If, if you consider that the whole world, all of the intelligence and military, and it's all focused on what happens to this place. Because it represents a holy place for Christians, for Jews, and for Muslims. It's very, very controversial. Now, in the book of Daniel and Revelation... It seems to prophesy that a temple will be re- rebuilt and the false Messiah, the Antichrist, will step foot in the temple to deceive people in what is known as the abomination of desolation. Okay? So if we can go to that next slide. The Temple Mount today, as you see it, um, the gold dome right there is called the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque is, is just towards us, which would be south of that. And you can see the Al-Aqsa Mosque that is up there on that Temple Mount. So this is that patch of land. This is that part that is in the middle of the old city that is more controversial than any other patch of land on the face of the planet today. But if you notice, they're thinking, where can we build the temple? And initially they were thinking that the Dome of the Rock, where the gold dome is, is where the temple had originally stood. Scholars and archaeologists today have done some work on the outsides and in the foundations, and what they believe now, a lot of them believe that the site of the original temple was not exactly where that gold dome is, but just north of it. Okay, So just leave that up there for a moment, and read with me in verse 2. John is told to measure this temple, but in verse 2 it says, but leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. So, the Jews got possession of the land of Israel. They received it back in 1948, um, or 19, yeah, 48, and then 1967, um, eventually they possessed Jerusalem, the holy city. But in 1967, when the Jews retook Jerusalem for the first time, 
the general at the time, General Moshe Dayan, the Israeli general, left the Dome of the Rock in place and let the Muslims remain there. Okay, so that's how it happened. 1967, you know, part of a, a settlement, a peace treaty. He said, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead and we'll let them keep that there. And he has stated that since then that he does not know why he did that. It's like, I don't know why he did that. You know, if I, I don't know what I was thinking. But I think I know. It's because in verse 2, it says it has been given to the Gentiles. Because if we go to the next slide, the court of the Gentiles, when the temple was built, you see how the temple, um, it, and it's an amazing thing, the temple wasn't a gigantic structure. It was a beautiful structure, amazing. But that court of the Gentiles was just on the side of it. Okay, so that's where the court of the Gentiles would be. Gentiles were not allowed to go into the temple area except for the court of the gentiles so when you think about where the current home of the dome of the rock is there's been this source of you know conflict and contention since that time pope uh, john paul ii when he was the pope suggested that the jews christians and muslims should be able to worship on that mount right now you cannot go up there if you're jewish so if, you, if a Jewish person goes up on the Temple Mount right now, literally, that's the beginning of World War III. It is, it is all, it's crazy how, and you could feel it when you're there, can't you? I mean, you could feel the intensity, and it, it's, a, it's kind of a weird thing, you know? And, and so you, you go there, but, but Pope John Paul II said, all of the, you know, the Jews and the Christians and Muslims should be able to worship together in peace by separating that property into three holy days that the Muslims get to worship on Friday, the Jews on Saturday, which is their holy day, and the Christians on Sunday. Now, with that prospect for peace, many of the Orthodox rabbis in Israel, like I said, um, they're training for the rebuilding of the temple so that they would be able to start animal sacrifices again. So that when the Messiah comes, they could rebuild the temple and they could start these animal sacrifices. And again, there are some that believe that, some of the Jews that believe that this will usher in the coming of the Messiah who will complete the temple. But how is that possible? Because the two Muslim holy sites are still there now. Again, recent archaeologists have suggested that the original site of the temple was not where they had previously thought, but just north of the Dome of the Rock. So I want you to see where the temple is and where the court of the Gentile is, the court of the Gentiles is. And go to the next slide. This is an artistic rendition of where the new temple would be built next to the Dome of the Rock. And you can see that the Dome of the Rock would be right where what is the court of the Gentiles. Where it says in Revelation not to measure that part because that part would be given to the Gentiles. So that's some history. We'll go through more later. But I just think it's fascinating. I, I just think that there is so much in Scripture that, that to me just... Um, gives a boost to my faith, which is already there. But then you see these things, and then you, you read things that are happening right now, and you almost feel like when I'm reading the newspaper about what's happening in the Middle East, or you know, I'm reading about online this new thing that's going on, I almost feel like, wow, these, that's like a commentary you know, of today of what's happening in the book of Revelation. Um, let's go to the next uh, part of the scripture. It says, And they will tread the, si the holy city underfoot, for 42 months. Now this is in the middle of this tribulation period that we've been reading about in the book of Revelation. 
For 42 months, the Jews will lose control of the temple. The Bible teaches that the great tribulation or Jacob's trouble lasts for seven years. So on Wednesday evenings, going through the book of Daniel, this is perfect. In Daniel chapter 9, 11, and 12, you're going to see that um, there is this thing called the abomination of desolation. We also see that Jesus said to look for the abomination standing in the holy place, which would be the main sign that the season of God's wrath was upon the earth. And that's in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 and 16 and verse 21. Then Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, that the Antichrist would sit in the temple as God. So with all that is going on to rebuild the temple, yes, there's a part like you kind of get excited going, wow, that, those things are happening. But my heart really is grieved because Jesus is the sacrifice for sin. And there are so many people that are deceived into thinking, no, there's some other way. There's something that I have to do. You know, I was just talking to um, a, a Jewish man recently, and we were, we were talking about, um, it, very interesting, because he converted to Judaism, and he was a Baptist in the past. And I said, you know, I don't know too many people that have gone backwards, you know, that direction, but I know, you know, others that have. And so, you know, I wasn't trying to be disrespectful, but we were just talking about it. And um, what I told him is I, I really think that when you look at all the religions in the world, they could be categorized in one of two ways. One religion, whether you're called a Buddhist or a Jehovah's Witness or, you know, a Baptist or, you know, any, whatever you're, you call yourself, there are some people that believe that in order to get to God, it has to be what I do. Okay, now I'm not saying that they're not, you know, Baptists, by the way, are great. I love, I love Baptists. But I'm saying there are people that are Baptists before Christian. I, I know people that are Lutheran or people that go to a Calvary Chapel. They may not be saved, but they say, this is my tribe. But they're still trying to get to heaven by trying to do enough good works. Trying to be better than, than they're bad. And if it, my good outweighs the bad, then I'm okay. And so they're always trying. There's never a rest. There's never a peace. There's not a, there's not a sense of God's grace. But true religion, relinking to God is this. God knows I can never be good enough. And I'll, I'm going to wear myself out. And my sin is going to be too great. So Jesus came as my sacrifice to reconnect me with God. He's the bridge builder. And that religion is God coming down to us, not me trying to climb up to God to be good enough. So it says that um, when you think about this Antichrist, there's many people that will be deceived. Now, it's this tribulation period that many people disagree with in regards to timing. Some people believe that this was the past. This is what happened in the first century. And so the tribulation speaks of what happened to the Jews. But I see the tribulation in Scripture as being worldwide. Don't you? When, I mean, it's, it's very obvious. It's worldwide. Some people believe that Jesus receives the church after the tribulation. Some people believe in the middle of the tribulation. That's called mid-tribulation. But I really believe that for the church today, that it's pre-tribulation. And let me explain why. I believe that Jesus will take those that know him before the tribulation because the tribulation period is called the wrath of the lamb. Jesus has come to take wrath upon himself. 
It says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So if he paid for our sins, then why would he then just pour out his wrath upon us? This is a designated pouring out of God's wrath on those that are in rebellion towards him and just continue to reject his love and his grace and his mercy. Why would he do that to those that have already received his love and his grace and his mercy? Now, I'm not saying that we won't go through some tribulation, but this is different. This is the great tribulation known as Jacob's trouble, in which I believe that many Jews at this point in time will come to understand that Jesus really was the Messiah and is the Messiah. So if we can go to the next point, the two witnesses, verse 3. It says, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is like burlap. Um, It's a representation of mourning. And 1,260 days, this is the same as the 42 months or three and a half years. So I believe that these two witnesses in the first part of the tribulation are just telling people to turn, telling people that, that, you know, the way to God, telling people that Jesus was the Messiah. We also realize that in the Bible, in 2 Corinthians, it says that by the mouth of two witnesses, every word will be established. Remember, two spies went out to spy out the land in, in the book of Numbers. Um, or, I mean, um, two spies commissioned were the ones that were correct, Joshua and Caleb. And then Joshua sent in two spies to scope out the land in Joshua. There were two angels at the tomb on, on uh, the resurrection. So who were these witnesses? Now, we don't know who they were for sure. Um, I really believe that, I, I think that it was, it's going to be Moses and Elijah. And if it's not Moses and Elijah, a representation of Moses and Elijah as the law and the prophets. And let me explain why. In verse 4, it says this. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. So remember the olive trees um, representing Israel, the two lampstands representing the church. But because there's no more church here at this point in time, I really think that they represent God. They're trying to give God's message to the people. They're standing before the God of the earth in verse 5. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. They have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Now, what prophet called fire down from heaven? Elijah did. What prophet prayed that it wouldn't rain and it did not rain? It was Elijah. So, you know, I I see that also Elijah was taken up in a a chariot to heaven. He was one of the people in the Old Testament that did not die. So I really believe that this is Elijah, um, possibly, or a representation at least of Elijah. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Who turned the water to blood? Who did God use to give the plagues through? It was Moses. Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament represent the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So I think about Jesus when he's walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And as they're walking, he he pointed out to them all of the things that pertain to him in Scripture And it says that their hearts burned. And I believe that these two witnesses are expert witnesses, so to speak, that are coming and testifying that Jesus fulfills 
all of the things, all of the prophecies from the Old Testament and all of the law. Now, point number two in there, the two witnesses martyrdom. It says, when they finish their testimony, key phrase, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So there's a beast that is going to ascend out of the bottomless pit, which we are going to look at later on in more depth, this beast, also known as um, the Antichrist. When they finish their testimony, I want you to notice that the beast doesn't overcome them and kill them until they finish their testimony. You know what that means? It means they are invincible until God's mission for them is complete. And the same thing is true for you and me, that until God's mission with me is complete, I'm kind of invincible. Uh, We were in Hawaii one time, and we were snorkeling, and we didn't realize that there was a tsunami warning. Um, So we're... We're snorkeling, we're at the beach, and then we hear the siren, and we're in the water. What is that sound? You know, what's going on? And then, you know, everyone starts to come out of the water, and it was a pretty scary thing. We, we come out of the water, we get back to the shore, and they're telling us it's a tsunami warning. And, and you know, it was a little bit scary to be there on the beach, and nothing happened, you know, there was no, no tsunami that hit, but somehow in the middle of that, I felt total peace. And, and it was because of this fact that I really believe, well, if it's my time to go, it's my time to go. And if it's not, then I don't have to worry about it. And so these witnesses, um, when they finish their testimony, then they are martyred. But notice this, there is always courage needed for a witness to come forward. There is always courage that is needed for a witness to come forward. You cannot be a neutral witness. Now, can you imagine if there's a court trial, and on this court trial, you know, there's a judge, I'd like to, and the attorney says, I'd like to call to the stand, um, I'd like to call Noah. Noah, would you come up here, and Noah Delman, could you state your name, you know, for the court, you know, do you swear to tell the truth? So he swears, and they said, okay, you saw this car, you know, this car was being stolen, what did you see? He says, mm, I'm kind of neutral on it. What do you mean you're neutral on it? Did you see it? Yes. Did he steal it or not? I'm not going to say. But yet, as a witness, he saw those things, but he's not willing, if he's not willing to testify, then there's a problem, right? If I know that Christ is real, and he's called me to be a witness, I cannot be a neutral witness. I cannot be someone that just sits by silently while I see people perishing. And neither can you. You think about sometimes these these. Uh, killings that happen and it happens in a busy city street and then all of a sudden everyone flees and the police are waiting and they say no witnesses have come forward they know people saw it they know that people know what's going on but no one is willing to why because it puts them at risk if i'm going to be a christian that follows christ i have to be willing to risk Because if I want to preserve my life, Jesus said I'm going to lose it. But if I lose my life for his sake, Jesus said you find it. So witnessing, you know, don't think of it as just something that some people have a calling to do. And some people are street witnesses and they go out and they preach to people on the street and hand out tracts and talk to them. He's called each one of us to be a witness, which means we can't be silent, which means it's going to take some courage. 
In verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. Notice it's called a great city, but spiritually, the way that God sees the city at this time, it's Sodom and it's Egypt, representation of, of, of the world outside of submitting to God. And so sometimes we could look at things and be so impressed. But God's list of what impresses him is different than our list. Maybe you've heard it said like this before, that our list of who's who is God's list of who's that. And our list of who's that is God's list of who's who. And there will be many people that are discounted in this world that are nobodies, that in God's eyes they have high esteem. Verse 9, Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. For them, this is like Christmas. I mean, think about if you've ever seen the, the, the video footage of Reginald Denny, who during the Rodney King, the riots in Los Angeles, just a very scary thing to be down there at the time. My wife was on an audit. She was in Los Angeles. Um, they called her. They said, get, get out of there, you know, go home. And I remember, you know, watching the news. This guy named Reginald Denny was a truck driver. Happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time in the corner of Florence and Normandy. If you've seen the footage, he is pulled out of his truck and he's beaten and a guy takes a brick and slams it on his head and all the people are just cheering and they're just yelling and I just felt sick, just sick to my stomach. This happens. These witnesses are left to rot for three and a half days because especially in Middle Eastern culture, it's an affront not to give someone a proper burial. And it says that the whole earth rejoices over them. I think about everyone being able to watch today on satellite television with a live webcam and, and pocket cameras and, and everyone around the world watching 24-7 and the earth celebrating. And why are they celebrating? I believe that they're celebrating because those who proclaimed truth and confronted these people um, were now dead. And then, in verse 11, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. Can you imagine what that's going to look like? And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The earthquake that brings God's judgment and validation for the ministry of these two witnesses, it causes the people to fear. And then it says they gave glory to the God of heaven. But it doesn't mean that they repented and were saved. And there's a difference between the two. They gave glory to the God of heaven. Um, you realize that scripture says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And some will do it unwillingly but they will have to do that. And yet they give glory to the God of heaven, but I don't know how many of these people really repented and put their trust in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And then we close this chapter with the seventh trumpet. Verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, 
The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And you know what? King Jesus, when he's reigning, there will be no more protests. There will be no more police. There will be no more politicians. And I'm not saying that all of these aren't, are necessarily bad. I'm saying this. We won't need them in the kingdom of Jesus' reign. In his kingdom, I'm not going to have to have my phone on speed dial to 911. I'm not going to have to lock the doors at night being afraid of who's just going to break down the door. I'm not going to have to be afraid of a, a corrupt politician that is taking bribes and just doing things according to his or her own pleasure. And then we see during the seventh trumpet, what do good elders do? Let's look for their example in heaven. In verse 16, the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God. For all of us that are elders, officially in that position, but then also just in a place of being an example to younger believers, the first thing begins with our own worship. It says the 24 elders, they fell on their faces and they worshiped God. It is not enough for me to tell you to worship. I have to worship. It's not enough to tell your kids to worship. You have to worship. Not enough to tell your kids, hey, you should read the Bible. You should read the Bible. It says that in verse 17, they said, we give thanks. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and the one who was and who is to come. Because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged. Remember this, that the anger of men does not produce the righteousness of God. Newell writes this, religion is decent, but surrender to God is intolerable to the nations of this world. People say religion is good as long as it's kind of like that thing that you have control over. Religion is fine as long as it just doesn't consume you. But as soon as you tell them, as soon as you say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, as soon as you, they find out that you believe that Jesus is the only way, believe me, people are very intolerant. In this world of tolerance, that is what they are intolerant of. And so the nations were angry. It says in verse 18, the second part of it, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. Remember that the reward, his reward is with him. And should destroy those who destroy the earth. Those who destroy the earth, not just speaking about those that are gross polluters, but sinful rebellion and pride is really what destroys this world more than anything else. And then we close with verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. So now there's the temple in heaven. And the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. So we see that there's the temple here on earth. And yet we also see that the temple on earth and the tabernacle are nothing but shadows and pictures and types of what is to come. What does the ark of his covenant represent? It represents the presence of God. Do you remember what was in the ark? Maybe you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, or maybe you've read your Bible. What's, what's inside of the ark? You guys remember? The manna, Aaron's staff, 
And then the tablets, which are the, the commandments that God gave, right? So if that represents um, God's, God's law inside of there, what is the lid to that ark called? Anyone know? It's called the mercy seat, right? And, and if you touch the ark, the Old Testament, you died, right? Know this, the blood on the Day of Atonement would be sprinkled. Jesus really is the one that took our sin upon himself. He is that mercy seat. He is the one that I am not going to be judged based on whether or not, I'm not gonna be judged based on the law. I'm gonna be judged as far as eternal judgment based on what I did with Christ. Did I believe him? Did I accept him? Did I receive that sacrifice? Did I accept that sacrifice? So what does this mean for us? This is not just for us today to look at future things and say, wow, that's, that's kind of cool. Man, I see some of these things maybe taking place, but it's this. The law and the prophets that, that Elijah and Moses represent, the law, God's righteousness and justice, the prophets who represented the reign of Christ. Remember that, it says in Revelation 19.10, see that you do not, uh, or um, when John tried to bow down to this angel, he said, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy is not just foretelling the future. It's, or foretelling, it's foretelling. God has given you and me a mandate in the Great Commission. We're to go and make disciples of all nations. We're to be witnesses. And what did the witnesses do? They testified to the law and prophets. They testified to what is right and good. They testified to Jesus. They testified of things to come. And I just want to ask you, encourage you, as well as myself, to be a bold witness. Remember that when we are witnesses for Christ, we are automatically enrolled in the witness protection program. Okay, just like these two witnesses. It doesn't mean we're anonymous and we disappear, but we are protected as far as anything eternal. I'm not protected from insults. I am not even protected from physical harm unless it is God's timing for me. But if it is God's timing for me, then I need to know that I could trust him with his timing and I could trust him with my life are you intentionally being a witness for Christ today? Intentionally thinking about it, making plans for it, considering your day, how can I be a witness? We live in a day and age where people need hope. So much bad news in the world. We have the good news, amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the witnesses that are represented here in Revelation 11. But Lord, we pray that we would be your witnesses today. God, we, there's so much, um, so much spite and vitriol and, and hatred right now. And, and Lord, so much misunderstanding. I, I pray, Lord, that you would use us. Lord, you haven't called us just to be witnesses who see things happening Lord, you've called us to be witnesses who testify of your grace and your love and your mercy. You've called us to be witnesses who, 
who are those who stand up for what is right and what is good and what is just. And I ask you, Lord, that you would help us not to be so comfortable that we won't do anything that takes us out of our comfort zone. I pray, Lord, that you would use us to speak up. I pray, Lord, that you would use us to love people, to do what you've called us to do, to do justly or to do justice and to love mercy, and then to walk humbly with you, Lord, because we know we're not better than anyone else. So today, we want to be those that worship you willingly. We don't want to just be witnesses of things that are to come in reading your word and say, what a great day that will be. But Lord, we want to say what a great day today is because we're saved. What a great day today is because we know that even though the world may look chaotic, Jesus, you are still in control. So now we worship you willingly in Jesus' name. Amen.